Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Tim Coulthard. I'm Maria Villablanca. And this week our guest is Professor Richard Wilding, OBE, who is Professor of Supply Chain Strategy at Cranfield School of Management. Richard, welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us. Um, so before we get into some specific topics, um, many of our audience will, will know you and your work, but for those that maybe don't, could you give us a quick rundown of your career so far and your kind of areas of interest? Maybe the 30-second version. I was going to say, we, only, we don't have that much time. So, so I'm a professor of supply chain strategy at Cranfield School of Management. I actually started my career in industry before accidentally falling into academia. So I spent quite a bit of time actually uh, uh, working in industry. Um, I then moved into academia, and I've actually uh, been in academia for a number of years now. Um, I'm also uh, chairman of the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport in the United Kingdom, um, so I'm, I'm currently have that role, and that basically means that you know, I have a sort of ultimate governance for an institution which has 17,000 members in the United Kingdom and um, 32,000 worldwide within within the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport family, and we're all it's all the people involved in the movement of goods and people and their associated supply chains. So it covers everything from you know sort of rail sector through to very much the logistics transport yeah. warehousing all that side of things the operations management buses um and really my my whole ethos my whole goal in life has been taking knowledge and creating action yeah. in industry yeah and really importantly to me what i want to do is generate innovation and innovation for me is taking ideas which are new to you and creating economic, social, or environmental value. So, you know, organizations like CILT enable people to share ideas yeah. so they can take those ideas and create innovation. Cranfield as a university, really important. And that's what we're about as well, you know. So we're, we're trying to enable organizations to take action to really innovate. Fantastic. So that's really, really what, what, I, what I try to do. Great stuff. And so in 2018, given that the supply chain is a very uh, broad topic and covering a lot of territory, both sort of metaphorically and physically, what are the areas that are exciting you? You talked about innovation. What's, what's kind of high on your agenda at the moment that's really inspiring you and getting your interest? I think that we're seeing a massive shift which has occurred within, within the sector, within the profession, within the last uh, few years particularly around it's really all those things industry 4.0 so i've been talking about the concept of you know logistics 4.0 supply chain 4.0 now the roots of this you could argue occurred in this world of omnichannel you know the the whole issue of omnichannel retailing yeah. and people having to actually work and act in a very very different way in order to be able to uh, well really survive as a retailer yeah. or to be able to deliver value to customers and I think what we're starting to see now is that these principles are sort of moving upstream within the supply chain. So the principles and expectations of the omni-channel consumer um, is now being passed sort of upstream. So in business to business, 
we're wanting that similar level of service yep. transparency and so on and so forth so that's actually creating a change and if i'm thinking about supply chain strategy a supply chain strategy has to sort of link very much to the corporate strategy of the business so you've got your corporate strategy for the business most businesses it's about taking over the world yeah. um, you then have the competitive strategy of the business which is really how you're going to compete in various markets and places and below that then the supply chain strategy which is really okay how are you going to be able to create value you know the Competitive strategy, we often talk is about demand creation. Yeah. Supply chain strategy is about demand fulfillment. And then really the, at a high level, the types of things you're playing with is your supply chain process design, your uh, supply chain infrastructure and equipment design. You're moving then into the whole realms of uh, also the, the whole issue of the information systems design. And then finally, we move through into the organizational and people design we don't really design people it's about how we structure people yeah. and the skill sets of those people and everything else so these people can actually all work together in an effective way so that's very much um you know the the the, the building blocks to make all this type of thing work now going back to industry 4.0 and supply chain 4.0 if you think about any of those key elements of that and, and there's nine key elements i'm not gonna be able to rattle them off now um without my notes um but um you know we've got nine key elements and you know some of them in, in involve um you know autonomous vehicles for example and yeah. so on and so forth big data analytics but if you think about that if you implement any of those within the supply chain it will change your processes it may then impact on the infrastructure and equipment you have so if you're putting in or, you know, um, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, that will change the nature of the processes, change the infrastructure and equipment you need. It will probably also change the information systems you need, but it also changes the people and the organization yeah. as well. So, we're, so that's an area which, you know, we're very much, um, you know, sort of working through at Cranfield and, um, and, and really engaging with businesses around because yeah. this is a there's a massive change which has occurred. It's probably one of the biggest changes we've sort of seen in in a generation. I would and argue. it's not something you can you can sort of cherry pick a particular technology because as you say, they don't exist in isolation. They're part of a system and a process. So you said additive manufacturing or autonomous vehicles. You can't just go. Well, let's do some additive and, and the and the change will be different from company to company, won't it? The change will be different yeah, from in yes. industry. Yeah. So if you're in, say, food service supply chains, the nature of what's actually going on in terms of the analytics they require will be very different to, say, the analytics that you need if you're, um, you know, um, in pharmaceuticals or in oil yeah, and gas. Right, pharmaceutical. And so, so that's the thing. But it's like you know, I often say that I'm a doctor of supply chains. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's like uh, what I'm able to do and you know you're able to look at a supply chain and there are common elements in all supply chains correct but at the end of the day all supply chains are completely different like people are completely different you know luckily um, a medical doctor can look at you or me and find out what's wrong with us yeah the common. It, it's the same with supply chains you know um, you you're able to look at supply chains and generally you know there's common components and you can yeah. say well that bit needs fixing or that bit needs fixing and so on yeah. and so forth but then there will be differences and then you might have a specialist on particular elements of those supply chains so you know that medical you know thinking through that uh, you know i'd encourage people but 
you know, uh, particularly executives, you know, recognizing that that there are commonality. Often one of the big arguments you get is, well, we're different. You know, we're a military supply chain. Therefore, mm. we cannot learn from food service or we're fashion and we cannot learn from automotive. That is yeah. just not the case. The innovation occurs by taking ideas from those environments yeah. and actually bringing them into your environment. You could argue that a, a pharmaceutical company that only looks at other pharmaceutical supply chains is minimizing and narrowing its opportunities. It's, you know, and, and that's, that often drives me mad when you're working with companies doing benchmarking, you know, because yeah. it's like, oh, who should we benchmark off? Let's go and benchmark off um, another, you know, I'm a pharmaceutical yeah. company. I'm going to look at another pharmaceutical yeah. company. Well, no, all you're doing there is you're just navel gazing yeah. and sort of reinventing, you know, stuff which has been going on in your sector. It, you know, really what you have to do is look outside. That's where the big insights start to come, you know, when you start actually looking outside what's actually going on. And, and that's where it gets really, really interesting. Well, that's, that's an interesting point that you bring up there, Richard, because the concept of supply chain has been around for a long, long time. And it's moved a lot, hasn't it, in, in the last couple of years. There's a great deal of change uh, afoot. Now, the question I was going to ask you is, first of all, what does it mean for practitioners on a day-to-day -day basis? And secondly, the word disruption is out there quite a lot. If people are going to be navel-gazing and looking at benchmarking within their own industries, do they miss the opportunity to disrupt in a truly uh, modern way with companies that are emerging in this consumer-led economy? Uh, and I think that is a really is really important because what you have to think is if you think about a practitioner, the practitioners who might be listening to to us now, um, that I generally say generally we're completely swamped. I mean, you, you know, just in terms of the demands on us. So you know, I'm sitting here and I can you know I can see in the corner of my eye emails coming in. You know, mm -hmm. I get about 150. <laughs> emails are not a good way of communicating with me, right? Yeah. Um, I get 150 a day, right? So, so if you think about my job, you know, it's I'm having to do all that. I'm having to do all these things and everything else. But also, you know, I have to sort of think through how am I going to maintain the competitive position of yeah. Transfield yeah. and, for example, the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, no, and what are what are the things that make us competitive? Why do people want to come to us, right? Now, um, I mean, one of the classifications which I actually use with companies is is often what you have is you have competitive processes, innovation processes, yeah. qualifying processes, and underpinning processes, right? Now, qualifying ones are just the stuff you're having to do on a daily basis to yeah. survive. So, if you're a um, a pharmaceutical company, there are certain things you just have to do. Every pharmaceutical company has to do it. If you're in your supply chain, you've just got to do this, you know? It's just the same. But customers don't come to you because of that. It's not, that's not the defining reason why they're going to do business with you, okay? Yeah. But we've just got to do that well, right? Yeah. Then you've got the underpinning stuff, which, you know, for a, a business, it might be, well, I've got to do my HR, I've got to do my professional development reviews, yeah. I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And as senior managers, we're having to go through all that stuff as well. You know, that's underpinning. And sometimes, you know, it might be the financial activities. So at a business level, you might even outsource some of this. Then you have the competitive processes. These are the, the reasons why customers come to you and why stakeholders want to engage with you. And that's how you're leading in what you're doing. Right? Yeah. The problem is, is what you're leading in now will not be what you're leading in in the future. Yeah. Eventually, those things will drop down to being the, 
if you like the qualifying processes mm -hmm. yeah they just become qualifiers yeah. so if you think about i mean just an example if we think about mobile phones yeah mobile phones um you know a few years ago the whole thing which was exciting was it was you know you'd see on their websites the network coverage you know our network yeah. covers you know 80 percent of europe um our network covers 96 percent of the uk's population yeah. yeah we don't ever see that now why because that used to be the way people, that was the competitive process early on now that's just a qualifier yeah that's you a baseline competing that's just a baseline yeah. you can't compete through that anymore so what is your new source of competitive advantage that's why you need the innovation processes it's those things that you need to be able to move, you know, create the next source of competitive advantage. And, the, and, and sorry, sometimes that's even happening outside of the sector that you work in. Absolutely. So, but that, the, those innovation things might be going on outside, but how are you as a business going to get that innovation into your business? So for Cranfield, we're often part of those innovation processes. You know, oh, we're going to work with universities and actually bring innovation and get our people into the universities so that they can think differently. So we've got things like the Agile Supply Chain Research Club, where we get 20 different organizations, different sectors, completely different sectors, okay? From all over, these are top, you know, from automotive yeah. to super high-end automotive to, you know, all that type of stuff, to, you know, food producers, you know, and, um, you know, spectacle manufacturers and salespeople and you know, all sorts of different people all coming together so they can share ideas and innovate. So that's part of their innovation processes. Now, for senior practitioners, and I think this is the important thing. So if you think about, you know, senior level people, a question I often ask them is, where do you spend 80% of your time focused, right? And often the response is they spend 80% of their time focused on firefighting qualifying processes. Yeah. Yeah, or underpinning processes. It's stuff, it's stuff which actually, they're spending all the time doing that. And actually, you need to switch it around. You need to be spending 80% of your time thinking about the innovation and the competitive processes. Yeah, yeah, which right? is why it's interesting. supply chain leader, you've got to have people who look after that, you know, the qualifying and underpinning. But as a supply chain leader, you have got to make it so you're not firefighting all this, you know, all, all this stuff. You've got to get that stuff working, Yeah. Um, you know, all that qualifying stuff, all that underpinning stuff to, to give you space to think about where things are going in the future. And do, do you think, sorry to interrupt you, Tim, do you think that the pace of change is so fast nowadays that that is why leaders need to be in that specific uh, space uh, of thinking about the future, about thinking about innovation? Do you think that yeah, has something to do with totally it? Totally agree. Totally agree that they've got to have that exposure. They've got to be thinking about what is going to be the next thing because the bottom line is, is that you, you know, your great idea of the way that you're competing at the moment within, you know, a few months, that could just be a qualifier. Yeah. And, and then why, why are companies going to want to do business with you? You know, you, you've just lost your thing. Then you get into it, which has happened very much in the logistics sector is then what happens we start competing on qualifying and underpinning processes. And what's the only way you can compete in that world is through price. 
Yeah. Then you start eroding all your margins. Yeah. Then you can't invest in innovation and the competitive processes. And to be quite honest, you're a business which is on a spiral to, well, nowhere, basically. Yeah. You're just going to go bump or be taken over in the future. So the challenge is how do we how do we get leaders and uh, uh, you know really senior level people to move away from eighty percent of their time spent on firefighting to actually innovating yes. and is that possible? Because everybody knows they need to be doing that, but the day to day struggle is that the you can't extricate yourself from that. So how? Well, you... I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, if you think about um, how we actually reward people within a business. If you're looking at the supply chain sector, generally, you know, what we like is we like these heroes who go in and fix problems, yeah. you know, oh, you know, we, we're going to, that, that material might be getting to the customer a bit late, quick, you know, get in there, let's get this sorted out. And guess what we do with those people? We promote them. So we, we basically, you know, we, we get those people who are really good at the firefighting yeah. and then we promote them. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, you know, at the, at the next level, they're really good at firefighting and then we promote them again. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're at the top of the organization and they're sitting to themselves going, oh, this is really good. But, you know, um, uh, you know, it's getting a little bit boring now. So do you know what they start doing? They become arsonists and start lighting their own fires. Because if you think about it, that's what they've been rewarded for. Yeah. yeah? So it yeah. creates a culture where actually we create arsonists within, within that. So our firefighters then become the arsonists because yeah. that's how they're rewarded. Okay. And I think this is, this is really part of it is, is, you know, within organizations and our supply chain teams, how we develop the people so that, you know, actually we start rewarding people for thinking about, you know, the stability and rewarding them for thinking in terms of innovation and the creativity. And this all fits in with this concept, which, which people are talking about now, you know, the bimodal supply chain concept, yes. which actually is to be quite frank, it's just a hijack of ideas which have been going around for ages. We talk, um, here we talk about lean and agile, you know, yeah. we've been talking about that for over 20 years, you yeah. know, because we pioneered at Cranfield, you know, agile supply chain concepts. And um, really, you know, we've got mode one and mode two. Mode one is really about stability, business as usual for the organization. It's that type of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And then mode two is about flexibility, it's exploration, it's understanding that. And I think what people are recognizing, and I quite like the term bimodal, because it emphasizes the fact that as an organization, you have to have both those modes operating simultaneously. And one of the things that we've found over the years in terms of research is that often it's different people have to sort of think about those two modes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It can't be the same people. Yeah. So, you know, how as organizations we can get that mode to exploration, agile way of working it might mean you need completely different supply chain structures for that as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, as well as different types of people with different skill sets. That's right. Yeah. Then, so you know, um, what you find, you know, in mode one, you know, you, you're going to need those specialists in lean, you know, lean six sigma, all that type of stuff. You need to have that element of leanness in order to be agile. So you need good mode one, so you can be good at mode two. I would argue. Okay. And then big challenge, I guess, is to join. Mode one often is focused on that qualifying stuff. You know, the qualifying processes. And, and a lot of organizations are covering this off now by having a kind of innovation team or yeah. pilot projects, um, you know, with various names. But I guess the challenge is, is to bring the learning or the development that happens in that innovative space yeah. 
into the business as usual. Yeah. And if you create a separate team or a little pilot project, the danger is, is it becomes a success in its own small well, going, going back to what you said, Richard, at the beginning of this, it's all about actionable, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's all about taking those ideas and actioning them because there's no point in having an incubator, say a, a hub of ideas, if all those ideas are just on a whiteboard somewhere. You know, how do we actually implement them? Yeah, and you've got to check. I mean, a big part of that, of course, is then changing the culture. Yeah. So and, and this is the important thing, because if you've got this little innovative group of people who are doing their thing and, uh, you know, they come up with these great ideas, but then they just hit a wall because they can't change and get that embedded in the business. Yeah. I often say that, you know, an uh, interesting definition of culture is culture is what people do in the absence of instruction when they're under a bit of pressure yeah if you think about that you know how does your business yeah. function you know when Default it's under behavior. pressure and there's no you know um no instruction right yeah. you know does it does it suddenly get collaborative and innovative or does it just sort of focus on its own little silo yeah. and it, um, a woman for themselves yeah 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 and so if you're thinking about trying to create that innovation culture You've got to basically get that embedded across the whole organization so that people can actually work in this particular way. Um, and, and that's tricky. Or you, you say that we have this as like a thread which is going through, you know, so there's various things that companies have done in the past. You know, I mean, there's been examples of companies which say every employee you're able to take two or three days out to do something crazy. You know, yeah. um, that might be it. I mean, it might not work for some companies, but, you know, that might be the type of thing that, can, it can sort of help you. I think some of the biggest challenges that some uh, of the people we talk to are, are discussing regularly is what I like to call the concept of uh, changing the tires on a bus while it's still moving. You know, yeah. the, the fact that you've got to change your company, innovate, you've got to drive uh, a great deal of diversity, collaboration, uh, thinking that rewards that kind of behavior. But at the same time, you've got to do your job on a day-to-day -day basis. You've got to, you can't stop that bus, can you? Yeah. So, yeah, so what kind of... Well, I was going to ask you, so how, what kind of, um, I guess, uh, concepts have you seen that have worked quite well with that? Well, I, I think the key thing is, is in a way, if you start thinking about, you know, just going back to those qualifying processes, generally the qualifying stuff, that is keeping yeah. the business going. You know, that's your, that's your bus traveling along. It's then actually recognizing that if you are going to create change, um, you need to dedicate resource and time and give people the opportunity and reward people for that innovation to create the new competitive processes. That's your yeah. change of your tires, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So, so if you think about your qualifying processes, that stuff you need to get fixed. Yeah. yeah? How, many, how many leadership um, you know, rewards packages or KPIs and metrics actually include that innovative element? True. Generally, you reward people and measure people's achievement via that business as usual. By the KPIs. Stuff. Yeah. So yeah. they don't have a particular interest in changing anything because their their raison d'etre is to fulfil business as usual. And I mean, just a way as an example. I mean, in terms of if you look at some of the companies who have been most customer centric, um, in terms of what they're you know, in terms of what they're doing and trying to actually embed and understand. Because when I think about supply chains, you know, this is an end-to-end -end concept yeah okay? yes the problem is is that often the way we structure we end up sort of sitting in our little silos okay so one of the key things you have to encourage people to do is to get out of their silos and some of the companies and there's quite a few of them now do as part of your annual you know professional development review and everything else 
is, and a big part of it is, is you are told you have to spend five days in a year in a customer or in a supplier mm. or in another function within the business. Yeah, yeah. Now, nobody's got time to do that. You know, going back to our world of 150 emails and everybody wanting a piece of you, nobody's really got time to do that. So unless the company actually says, we're going to state that this is a requirement, yeah. this is something we need to have, and you will also be measured that you have spent that time and what you've achieved through that, these things will not happen. And yeah. you're absolutely right. You only get what you measure, you know, you only get what you measured on. So, you know, yeah. in universities, I mean, for example, um, what they would love me to do and have to be careful here is to write lots and lots of academic papers but do any of it you know do you guys read academic supply chain papers we have the time yeah, yeah. yeah no when so you know so here's a secret i hate doing them because all i'm writing for is i'm just writing generally for other academics yeah, yeah. yes i'm entertaining academics that's not my audience my <laughs> audience i you know i love getting out there with industry and actually yeah ideas off them because that's once again how we create the innovation yeah. um i'd like to look a little bit at some of the the technologies and innovations themselves if we take a very very big caveat to say that we've now solved all the cultural issues and we now have that's visibility a, that's a, that's a big no, no, you're never going to solve those yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's say we found some time okay we'll, we'll be generous with that um, you know, there's a big sort of shopping list of exciting new shiny things that are mm. on the horizon for some organizations they're, they're becoming reality for others. They seem distant, whether that's AI and demand sensing and blockchain and autonomous vehicles. And they're exciting to talk about. And, mm. and you know, we, we, we're kind of doing that very much, but the reality for a lot of practitioners must be, well, I don't see exactly how that's going to be impacting me in six months time, maybe six years time. So of some of these new trends and technologies, which do you see as maybe likely having a more immediate impact and changing the way supply chains function? I think, um, I mean, a, a couple of the ones which I think, what, often what you're finding is, is that if you think about supply chains, we've got existing infrastructure, processes, information systems, and everything else, which we're already sort of bought into uh, to some degree you know we've yeah. invested in those so for businesses to make the transition you know if you're going to suddenly say hey let's have a fully automated warehouse for example um that can be a challenge but the point is a lot of these technologies now can already be implemented to a um you know into an environment so cobots for example collaborative yeah. robots um that is a technology which already you know the barrier to entry is relatively low yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had one of our Agile Supply Chain Research Club meetings here at Cranfield recently, and we had a number of companies actually talking through uh, their experiences. They're saying that they're getting a return on investment on that type of technology of less than 12 months. Wow. Really? Yeah. You can get a collaborative robot now for around about um, 30,000 yeah. pounds, um, you know, similar in dollars, okay? Uh, what the companies are saying is, yes, it's not just a matter of just buying that bit of technology. You've then yeah. got to spend a bit of time with it. So they reckon really the true cost is probably around about sort of £75,000-ish. Mm. However, still return on investment yeah. in less than 12 months having that technology in. Yeah. Now, if you think about our in existing infrastructure, say warehouses and so on and so forth, we can take that, we can start piloting it, implementing it. It can support and it improves productivity. Um, the other ones, which I think is artificial intelligence, we can see where that's going already. 
Um, that is moving just so fast in many areas. Um, so, you know, ultimately what we've already got is b uh, big companies like JDA, you know, one of the big software yeah. providers, they're collaborating with Google on, um, on using the Google AI engines, artificial yeah. intelligence engines, to pump supply chain data into them. So if you start thinking of the implications of that, you know, one of the big challenges is forecasting and working out how yeah. best to forecast this, that, and the other. Could it be that in the next few years, we just have an AI engine doing the forecasting for us? We don't need to have somebody actually sitting there and actually thinking about it, you know? Um, and I don't think that that, you know, if I'm looking at the way that these things are going, I don't think that's too far away, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, but th th let, me, let me just interrupt you for a second because mm. Tim and I are constantly having a debate about tech versus people, you know? So yeah. uh, tech is great and, and those of us that have been in the industry a long time have known that we've been hearing about tech and automation and the factories of the future and all that for a very, very long time. But you cannot do anything without the people. You cannot do things. I mean, even these cobots, you bring them into the business, they still have to work within infrastructures that exist, within yeah. management infrastructures, and those have got to change. So, okay, let's, let's fast forward to the time where you say that this, the AI is doing all of these forecasting and replenishment models, all of that stuff. Where does that leave companies with or their people their teams does that leave them with more time to innovate like we talked about or does that leave them in uh out of jobs yeah well uh, i mean i think it's really interesting actually because we've also already just without even ai um you know just through some of the clever approaches on segmentation in supply chain and looking at different approaches to forecasting through you know more or less uh, segmenting out you know volume versus variety and working out those things and treating um, different groups of products in different ways. You know, there was one company which I was working with, they had 10 people involved in forecasting. Uh, what actually happened wow. was just by taking that particular approach, they got it down to um, about seven people, okay? So there was three people. Actually, what they did was those three people were then being employed on those innovation projects. Right. However, there are massive broader implications for this because when you start thinking about some of the technologies which we're using, so if you look at, for example, Nike have just made their, they made their announcements in November 2017, um, you know, they did a big announcement, as they say, we're restructuring our supply chain. And I think one of the interesting things about that was, you know, it basically said, yeah, at the moment, we've got like 1 million workers employed in our supply chain in, you know, thousands of factories and all this type of stuff. The lead time is currently 60 days. We want to move it to 10 days. You know, there was all these sort of facts going up. And they said, what we're actually doing now is we're going to actually be doing local small footprint manufacturing, yeah. using additive manufacturing technology and everything else. Um, they said that this is going to enable us to be more responsive to our customers. It's going to cut the lead time down to 10 days. Um, there will be 30% less process steps in there. And then they say also, you know, as a little side and 50% less labor. Yeah, correct. Right? Yeah. right. So check it out. 1 million people currently employed in those current supply chains. Yeah half a million are going to lose, lose their jobs. And this is actually really, really important because, um, you know, you, I'm, I'm saying they're going to lose their jobs. Well, they're not going to be working on, on, you know, what Nike's been giving them. So we've got, you know, we've literally got half a million people. And this is one of the big challenges. If you're a supply chain leader, your decisions now, you know, at the end of the day, you're being rewarded, aren't you? You're being yeah. rewarded to procure stuff more cheaply, manage this more cheaply, do this, do that. But 
is the company actually thinking through some of the implications of what's going on here? Yeah. When you're making a decision, a procurement decision, are you actually factoring in not just the impact on the environment, you know, yeah. um, are we actually also factoring in, you know, profitability You're sure to be doing that, you know, yeah. but, but what about society? What about society? And this is something that we really need to sort of think through is how some of these decisions are going to impact on society. Yeah. You start actually thinking through that we're going to end up with, um, you know, uh, half a million uh, less people employed in that. That's a massive societal impact. Now, if you start rolling that out globally, yeah. you know, what's that going to then create for us? It could create the social unrest. Yes. That will then be disruptive to supply chains. You know, if we've got more uh, Syrias and more, you know, Arab Springs and everything else, that actually disrupts supply chains. Not only that, but you have fewer consumers. Fewer consumers, yes. That's the other thing. So how are we going to handle that one? So uh, the, one of the key points about this is, if you think about where are these decisions being made? They're not being made at a board level. This is actually being made at a sort of a, maybe even a manager level, senior yeah. manager level. And are we actually factoring in all those, you know, all those particular issues? We as consumers have a similar sort of responsibility. If I'm looking at, for example, um, you know, business consumer home delivery, Research has shown that actually if I'm buying a sort of a, I won't talk about grocery products, it's slightly different, but if I'm just buying a, you know, a standard, you know, a sort of a non-grocery product and I buy it online, right, I will produce 20 times less CO2 than if I get in my car and I drive to a shop and I buy it. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay, so the, you know, they've worked out the average distance you will drive for a product is about seven miles in the United Kingdom, you know, so you're going to go into town and out again or, or whatever. So you're going, to, you're going to do all that, okay? So you can have 20 missed deliveries before you create the same level of CO2 compared with wow. you know, having that guy going around. That's what you have to think, so they're doing multiple drops. Okay. That's far more efficient. So, hey, big plus here, big plus for the environment. However... <laughs> However, let's yeah. think about profitability. Well, the jury's still out on some of this online stuff. There's no doubt about that. You know, who, who's actually making money? Well, you yeah. can say Amazon's making some money, but actually they're probably making more money because, you know, they've got Prime. And web they're services. Chucking, and, they're yeah. chucking in billions into Prime before you even bought anything. So they're yeah. able to invest in everything else. But anyway, let's move away from that. So you can have a debate then about who is actually profiting from this. Yeah. So yeah. profitability, the jury's out. Think about your local town. What about your local society? Yeah. I've just gone and bought that from, you know, online. Yeah, it's great for the environment. Yeah, okay, the companies involved might be making a bit of a profit, and I'm, I'm really happy about it. But I've just, I'm just now taking away business potentially from my local town, so then for my local town, my local community starts yeah. to collapse, yeah. right? You have, no longer have a town centre. And that's what we're starting to find because you're now getting town centres, which are destination shopping centres occurring across the UK. And the small towns are really dying. You know, they're just turning into charity shops, coffee shops. Yeah. And, so forth. and so that is having a big impact on society. And that's decisions that you and I are making. Yeah. And then if we could just get into the next great one, because what do we all want? Free delivery, free returns. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, free delivery. Somebody's paying for that. Somebody's paying for that. So if you think about free delivery and free returns, it's not free delivery. It's not free returns. As consumers, we yeah. need to recognize that there is an implication. And, you know, ballpark figures, rule of thumb, which I use, is that if you're buying something home delivered, it's generally 20% of the sales price of that item to get it delivered to your home. Right. So if you're buying something for, say, £20, probably going to cost you around about four pounds to get it delivered yeah. to your home if you're looking at two-man delivery you know bigger items uh, the percentage is uh, slightly less believe it or not but that's because of the value of the item being much yeah. more then if we return it yeah do you know what it is it's three times that wow times that that's you know ballpark figure three times that so, you know, if you're looking at some of the fashion retailers, if you're returning a, an item which is, say, under the value of, say, £15, they won't even process it. Really? Yeah, they won't even process it on occasions. So, you know, this is the thing. How can we extract that value? Because it's just too costly for them to actually process it. So they've just got to, they're just losing the margin there. So this is part of the challenge that we've actually got in terms of thinking through supply chains. Our actions as consumers... Is creating a response okay what then happens is you've got the companies involved they're then saying to their logistics providers and everything else we want it cheaper we want it cheaper yeah and, and then there's no margins they can't invest uh, and then they wonder why the service they're getting is so bad however the good news is there is a bit of a swing occurring i'm finding now that actually yeah okay price is important but actually now particularly on home delivery people are starting to pay for service because they yeah. realize that the only person that you will actually see, you know, as a consumer is probably that delivery. That delivery. Yeah. Yeah. That is the, one of those interesting aspects of how supply chain is changing is that your last mile delivery is essentially your brand. You know, yeah. if for example, I come home and someone's lobbed the box over my fence and it's raining and it's now all you judge the, uh, the yeah. company yeah, yeah. Judge the co <clears throat> I, i'm not interested in who the uh who the delivery driver was or which company he was working for my experience is with the brand with whom yeah. i had the transaction right and i think companies are now like yeah, you said they're, they're going to in that area. and the same thing is happening in other environments as well you know you look at food service for example you know the complexities of food service i, mean, I had a great visit um, last week to really try and understand that with uh, you know best food logistics who you know they cover various brands like pizza express and everything else and they're delivering into their things so they they're doing you know three different temperature zones but let's just think about you know food, food logistics for example talking to some of them some of the stores that they deliver into if you deliver between 7 30 and 9 which is the breakfast period that store just one individual store will lose 800 pounds worth of business wow. you know, really right if you deliver over lunchtime that store will actually um, will lose about 1200 pounds that was on one particular store now think about that that means that they have to deliver within very very tight windows yeah so you've got a time between breakfast and lunch you've then got a time in the afternoon before dinner because they you know you'll lose money there yeah. as well depends on the nature of things so so you know the cost to serve people understanding the cost to serve becomes really really important because they're starting to work that out. Now, if you think about how we traditionally have managed these things, you know, you're getting service levels of on-time delivery of about 40%. That's no longer, that will no longer work. No. So what's, what's actually happening is they're starting to drive those service levels way over 90% to really be able to compete in that, in that particular environment. 
But that means that, you know, the customers can no longer say, hey, we want it dirt cheap, you know, per case, we want it this much per case. They're, they're basically recognizing if we can pay a bit more, we get a better service, we're not going to be losing all this other, all these other bits of money, which might be, uh, which might be going, you know, which might be taking place. So, you know, you get different things actually occurring within that sort of that environment. We'll have exactly the same principles occurring, you know, if you're delivering into automated facilities, mm. but it'll be on a different scale and there'll be a different, different issues around delivering in. You'll get the same in pharmaceutical as well. And, and that's something which is really, really important. It's understanding the cost to serve yeah. when, we're, uh, when we're actually working with, uh, with, with organizations. And, and, and that's another change which has occurred in the last few years because we've now got, if you like, the analytics yeah. which enable us to start to bottom out cost to serve, you know, particular customers, particular um, products, and what's the overall impact. It sounds like there's a, there's a significant period of realization still needed among organizations because we hear lots of conversations about people saying, how do we compete with Amazon and the big online giants? But from what you're saying, <clears throat> be wary of trying to emulate that because they're only able to continue that because they are that Behemoth. size. There, mm. is, there is still a lot of sort of learning to be done around how this plays out. We're actually in the early phases yeah. of understanding well, what the on-demand consumer-led supply chain means. Strategy becomes critical because if you're going to, if you think about Amazon, going back to, you know, those, those four things, Amazon have the processes in place. They have the infrastructure and equipment in place. They have the information systems in place and they have the organization to be able to do what they're doing. Okay. So if you're looking at Aldi and Lidl, Aldi and Lidl, they have the processes, the infrastructure and equipment tailored for that sort of you know, low cost thing. Yeah. In fact, you know, if you look at a typical Aldi store, who stacks the shelves? Half the time, it's the consumer stacking yes. the shelves, isn't it? You know, yeah. think about it. You've got those freezers, which are carousel freezers. The stuff is dropping down when the box is empty. You as the consumer go, oh, there's nothing in there. And you pull it out, you throw it on the floor, right? So, so you're effectively, you're doing the job there. And then if you get somebody turn around and say, oh, well, we're gonna emulate that. They haven't got the infrastructure, even at that level, to be able to compete in that particular way, you know? And yeah. you know, it was always the case with Aldi. They used to pay their till operators more than anybody. Because in the old days, remember, they used to memorize the prices <laughs> of all the items. You know, that's what they used to do. So they could just sit there on their keypads, you know, doing their yeah. thing. Now, of course, it's scanned through. But, um, you know, these are the types of things you think. So then you get another big retailer, you know, like a Tesco or a whatever, and they turn around and they say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to emulate that. Well, no, because it's going to be a real struggle for you. And then, you know, you just look at click and collect. Click and collect, that's generally 5% of sales value, <laughs> right, into a good yeah. part figure. Um, you know, because it's, you know, even if you're buying some, you know, if you're buying something, somebody's got to collect it, somebody's got to package it and sort it out. So there is a cost to serve associated with that. And, you know, you have to be clear that, do we want to play this game? Because strategically, you know, if you think about the Aldis and Lidls, at the moment, they're not playing the online game. Yeah. Why? Because they're focused. They're saying, what we're about is this particular thing. We're just going to do this, and we're going to optimize around this particular strategic approach, right? Have that clarity in the strategy, Yeah. yeah. Um, other organizations, they're saying, right, what we're going to do is we're going to work in this way. But if you're trying to do a bit of everything, yeah, you, you're doing a road margin. Yeah. And yeah. It's just 
costs you loads. Yeah, so companies need to think before they wander down the e-commerce route, assuming yeah. that that's the way they have to go because everybody well, else seems to be doing that's a, it. That's a knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you, you, can, know, you can't do this in a knee-jerk way. You might say, well, all our co competitors are doing it, but you need to decide what is going to make me special. What, am, what is my competitive process? How am I going to compete in this particular environment? You know, how, how am I going to how am I going to compete? So I think that's really important. And in terms of the advice for the supply chain or logistics professional uh, navigating these, these uh, complexities of uh, understanding their strategy, understanding their competitive advantage, what, what advice would you give a professional in this, in this capacity nowadays? Well, I think one of the key things is, is that, um, you know, um, you, you do need to, you know, first question I generally ask company, well, what is your strategy? Have you got, have you, you know, <laughs> have you got a strategy? Yeah. Um, you know, um, what, what is your corporate strategy? Um, yeah. Often, you know, the way that we get, often the supply chain people can be very much embedded, um, you know, I mean, in some of the really big, you know, uh, yeah. top companies, this isn't the case. So I'm, I'm being, you know, if I think about those companies who are struggling with this, there might be some of the smaller organization more medium things or people yeah. who are in charge of business units one of the things is just you know you do need to have clarity around what your supply chain strategy is you need to collaborate very closely with those responsible for building the competitive strategy in other yeah. words they might be your commercial sales departments so make sure you've got really good collaboration internally i think that's one of the key things that you can start by doing you know, really think through how to do that I then think that, you know, in terms of this whole innovation place, you've got to connect, get connected outside your business. So, you know, um, you know, I'm going to give you a sell on, you know, Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport or uh, Chartered Institute of Purchasing Supply. Become a member. Why? Because you're going to then be sort of connected with other excited, um, you know, individuals. Join you, you know, get, get embedded with your organization, yeah. you know, so that you can start networking through there. Because yeah. then what you're actually able to do is to get these new ideas, you know, which are going to create value, you know, both for, for the environment, your yeah. profitability, and also your society. But your society could be your organizational society, yeah. as it were. Yeah. yeah? So, you know, you've got to be able to get those, those things in place to make it work. I mean, I think that's, what's, uh, that's what becomes really, really important. So if I'm going to summarize, you know, those are the top tips. And yeah. then, and then, yeah, well, if you're going on that journey, you'll then need to think about your processes. Have you actually got those transparent? Do you know yeah. what's actually going on? Do you know what infrastructure and equipment you're using? <laughs> what, you know, these are simple questions, but often people don't know. Because yeah. they're too busy, you know, trying they're to too busy. Yeah. They're too busy sort of firefighting in their little world right. to actually understand some of the entirety. But that, that's part of the next part of the journey. Absolutely. And it's, it's an exciting journey. Um, and one that is increasingly, you know, drawing in different areas of technology and leadership mm. and change management and that kind of thing. Do you think perceptions both in sort of the public world and then also within industry itself, have, have caught up with that or does the, the supply chain kind of profession have more to do to really sell the excitement that is actually generating in the profession well i mean one of the things i've been talking about um uh, you know just recently in terms of the change management the, the problem is is that often we're using the wrong language so if we look at um say supply um supply chain managers you know we love to talk about you know oh we've got a 95 percent availability level uh, or a 98 percent 
what does that mean? You know, what does it yeah. mean? So starting to change the language. I mean, we started, um, you know, um, using the term, the language of profit quite a few yeah. years ago. So actually moving this away from talking about those statistics and saying, hey, I can help you. At the moment, you're probably losing, you know, £200,000 worth of business on this particular product line. I can help you reduce that to, say, £50,000. Yeah. That is just saying I'm going from 95 to 98%, for example. Yeah? Yeah. Using that language, using the language of profitability, using a language of service, you know. And the other one which I've been talking a lot about is the language of safety, you know, because we have to think through safety as well. You know, having, oh, well, we haven't had this, you know, if we're doing supply chains, this is critically important. You know, if I'm looking at, if I look at the UK, I was looking at some of the stats on, you know, the basically just logistics um, in industry. If you look at the number of people who have work-related sort of illnesses, it could be stress, it could be that or, or whatever. It's in the, it's over 50,000 a year. Yeah, over 50,000 a year. Now we look at those statistics and we go, oh, well, we're a big industry and all that type of stuff. But we've got to create change in that as well. You know, like near miss accidents or reportable accidents. We're working with one company and what they're now doing is, is they're tracking precisely what happens after, you know, somebody's, um, you know, strained, strained their arm in a warehouse. Well, so what? They reported it and they're off work for a couple of days. Mm. But actually what they then do is they tracked it and they said, well, that guy... It, you know, he was a young father, just had a baby. He wasn't able to hold the baby for a, a month. Yeah. 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 He's never going to get that back. Somebody else who got, you know, minor chemical burns, not really a big issue. They're back at work relatively quickly, but they weren't able to go in the sun yeah. for three weeks. So they missed the family vacation, you know? Yeah, you know. Yeah. And often we don't think that way. So what we've got to do is take the statistics and make it real and personal. Yeah. So if you think about the language of safety, it's about taking, taking those statistics, but make it real and personal, real and personal, because then we'll create change. Take service, make it real, make it personal. If you're talking about profitability, you know, the language of profit is making it real, making it personal for those people. And then we can start actually embedding change and starting to create change, um, not just in this country, but globally. Yeah. I think in terms in terms of the um, the profession, you know, supply chain and logistics as a profession, attracting uh, diversity and attracting younger people to the workforce, does supply chain have an image problem uh, in terms of um, is it sexy enough? You know, is it exciting enough? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming. I, I think the problem is 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 um, is you know, if you think about some of the stuff which is coming on board, robotics, yeah. um, you know, all, all this type of stuff. At the moment, the problem is, is people think supply chain is just about, you know, it's uh, delivering white vans, throwing pallets and fences, or yeah. people working in warehouses and everything else. It's yeah. so much more than that. And I think it is becoming sexier. Um, one of the things which, uh, you know, the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, and uh, we're really pushing for is we've got concepts like um, think logistics, you know, um, and so what we're trying to do is to actually get people, even in schools, to just understand a little bit more about supply chain. Yeah. And sadly, you know, um, uh, you know, events like, you know, the KFC crisis, that actually yeah. brought to the fore what's going on in modern supply chains. You know, the fact that actually think about the processes, infrastructure, um, you know, information systems and the people, it's different. It's not. They're not all employed by KFC. Yes. Yeah. Organizations coming together. And I think that, you know, those types of things are actually getting, making people more aware of what's happening and some of the logistical problems as well. So, so, you know, there's great opportunities for us to really sell 
the profession um, as we move forward. And I think that's the important thing to recognize. It's not an industry. It is a profession, what we're, do what we're doing. And we're trying to professionalize the profession. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I like that. Absolutely. About. Now, how can we professionalize the profession? Because a lot of what's been going on hasn't, you know, if you think about, you know, accountancy and everything else, it's very much a professionalized profession, yeah. you could argue. Yeah. We've got to do the same within our profession. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place um, to, to wrap it up. I know you, you've got a busy day ahead of you, but um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. There's a lot of exciting yes. trends, um, which we'll, we'll all be trying to cover and stay ahead of if we can, uh, or at least be adapting to while the, the busy day jobs take place. So Richard, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. It's been a really interesting, wide ranging conversation. Yes. Thank you very much. I think we're going to try to spend some time or, or change up the fraction here so that 80% of our time is spent not on fighting fires and maybe innovating. And I hope so. People within our profession will uh, will take a page out of your book on that. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, and perhaps we can do it again sometime. Yes. 